is Our American Stories, and today we have another story from the villages in Florida. The retirement community with over 2,200 clubs, more than 150,000 residents, and over 600 holes of golf. This is where we've been sending our young faith, our faithful correspondent. Today she brings us a story from a 93-year-old World War II veteran named Donald. And by the way, there was a terrific one she did a couple of weeks ago with Gene Nupp, who was 92 and a World War II veteran. She begins by explaining to us the Honor Flights program. The Honor Flight Network is a nonprofit organization created solely to honor American veterans for all their sacrifices. They transport our heroes to Washington, D.C. to visit and reflect at their memorials. Top priority is given to the senior veterans, World War II survivors, along with those other veterans who may be terminally ill. According to the Department of Veteran Affairs, an estimated 640 World War II veterans, they die each day. Our time to express our thanks to these brave men and women is running out. On their visits, people will line up to cheer on these veterans to thank them for their service. I spoke with one of their volunteers, and she said there's nothing like seeing the faces of these men as they are acknowledged and thanked for what they have done for their country. On their return home to the villages, they are met at the airport by hundreds of people as if they are coming home from war. However, some of these men cannot travel to DC due to age and disability. So to make sure that they don't get overlooked, the Honor Flight simulated a trip to DC by taking them to the Eisenhower Recreation Center in the villages, where many have donated their war items and memorabilia. They go there for the day and then come back to the American Legion Post 347, where they were met by a crowd waving their handheld American flags, cheering them on, thanking them for all their service. And while I was there waiting for the group of veterans to come, there was music playing. And I saw a much older gentleman get up with his cane and walk to the front of the crowd. He picked up his cane and started dancing. At that point, I knew I needed to talk to him. We began by talking about his dancing and when he got his dancing skills. I go ballroom dancing, too. I had a music start. I can dance for three hours. Uh, I lived about, there's a boy about 50 miles from uh, Manhattan. I had two uncles in vaudeville. They would come in, they used to tour the whole country, Chicago, Los Angeles. they come in New York, they always visit my parents. And they would do their show for me or the family. So I was like a little 10-year-old kid, I'm watching. And they taught me to dance, I just did then. That's the old soft shoe. You know, in vaudeville, you had to do everything. You had to sing, you had to act, you had to dance, you had to tell jokes. They even tried to teach me juggling. I failed that. I, I never could juggle. I play seven instruments, but I can't sing. <laughs> what instruments do you play? Organ, piano, keyboard, uh, tenor banjo, uh, five-string banjo, mandolin, country fiddle, uh, guitar, and uh, dobro guitar. That, I, that's unbelievable. That dance I did there, the old soft shoe. Uh, I hear that, it's almost like a narcotic. I gotta get up and do it. I'm dreaming. 
dragged out, you know. I'm, I'm not, I don't care if there's a million people watching me. You know? Is it because of the memories that it brings back? Yeah, right, of the, my uncles and, and the, I say the good old days. Then I was able to ask Donald how he got into the military. Being a kid from upstate New York who loved to dance. Uh, I was in a merchant marine. Uh, my brother was a captain, sea captain in the merchant marine. And uh, uh, he used to come back from all over the world with these curios and souvenirs. And, Gee, I want to do that. So I graduated from high school. And I lived in Long Island about 50 miles from New York City. And uh, <clears throat> in 1941, I graduated in June, and two weeks later, I was on the ship. And I spent 15 years in the Merchant Marine. Of course, World War II started when I was there. And so I just stayed in there for the whole 15 years. And then uh, what they put me on is, uh, I was in the engine room, which are underneath the water. My job was to carry bombs, aerial bombs, from the United States to England for the old Army Air Corps and for the RAF, Real Air Force. And of course, you had to do German submarines there who tried to torpedo us so they didn't go through. So I, I did that. I was attacked 15 times. I never got sunk. And once I got hit with 9,000 tons of bombs, got hit by a torpedo that was a dud and didn't go off. Not only was he attacked 15 times and survived, he survived more than that. Well, I was in D-Day in, in uh, Normandy at Omaha Beach. And for that, that's why I have the French Legion of Honor. Our ship was one of the first ships in. And uh, what had happened on Omaha Beach, the Germans had these cannons and pillboxes. They were supposed to have been bombed out. They never were. Everyone was active. So we come in, they started shelling us. They sunk my sister ship. They hit my ship, and we had 19 casualties. And they were trying to get the troops off. Because we were bringing in the, uh, the engineering group that would try to take the mines out, you know. They were the first ones in. You couldn't have the infantrymen coming in with mines in it. So we were, that's why we were the first ones there. We just brought the, the troops in, and then we would put cargo nets over the side, and the, the soldiers would climb down. We could only get so close, else we'd be stuck. And they were getting clobbered, you know, for all the fire. What were the feelings and the thoughts going through your mind? Uh, you just don't think about it, you know. We stayed there for, uh, let's see, that was June. They kept us there going into all the beaches, U- Utah, Omaha, Sword, that was a different name, so, uh, until September. Then they sent us back to New York. And when we come back, we'll hear more of Donald's story. Faith talking to Donald at the Villages. Here on Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the conversation between Faith and World War II veteran Donald at the Villages, where we've been sending Faith on and off now for the past couple of months, and she'll be going back for the next year. And we picked the store where we were left off. He had just shared his experiences from the beaches of Normandy. And by the way, what I love about this show is that we learn and we're reminded constantly of the different, different skill sets that bring us to victory in the battlefield. And these engineers, my goodness, if they weren't there picking those mines off those beaches in Normandy, and we want to talk about some dangerous work, folks, that's the most dangerous. Our men don't take the hill, and then we don't take Berlin. And Donald was a part of that wave, and I'm just so grateful that we get to hear from him. And let's continue the story of what he came up upon as a merchant marine on those shores. Even after all that he did and all his service with his fellow merchant marines, they were not immediately recognized. And uh, ironically, I was in the merchant marine. The merchant marine was a non-military group. This was the private ships. And of course, when the war starts out, we're taken over by the Coast Guard. And they tell us where to go and what to take. So people say, what's a merchant marine? I said, who do you think brought all the ammunition, the trucks, the tanks, the airplanes in the Pacific and the Atlantic? Who do you think did that? FedEx and UPS? Oh, I need 9,000 tons of bombs, FedEx. Can you take it there? You know, the Mercurian did it. And we got no credit for it. We had the highest killed rate, rate, not numbers, in World War II. Merchant was one out of 26 men. In fact, after the war, I went to join the American Legion. They said, you're not a veteran, you can't join. And the fellow ahead of me had stayed in the Coast Guard in the office in New York for the entire war, and they took him right in. And I had gone through 15 attacks, landings at Normandy. They said, you're not a veteran. This was so unfair that eventually somebody took it to the Supreme Court. It's like, I think it was in the 90s. They said, this is ridiculous. Of course, they had the highest kill rate. They're veterans. They get all veterans' rights. But by that time, everything was gone. All the GI Bill of Rights and free college, that was all gone. Basically, what they gave us was a flag and a grave. That was their thank you. So... That left a bit of taste in our mouth. Eventually, they were considered veterans, and he was awarded with more than just a grave. I read in an article in the paper that what the, uh, what the French government has done, if you were in any battle on French soil, you're entitled to the Legion of Honor. So I was in the Normandy invasion, so that entitled me to it. So I wrote to the... Uh, consulate in Miami, and they started, they said, send us all your records. I did, they went through it. They checked it out, the embassy in Washington checked it out. Went to Paris and got checked out. They said, you've been awarded it. So I had to wait a year before I actually got the medal. So I went down last year. It's only 72 years to get it since it happened. I think there were five other 90-year-olds we each got the... Two of them didn't get it. They had died, so a daughter and a son took it for them. One had died like a, a week before. 
Donald felt like there was one thing that got him and his brothers through the war. I always claimed my mother, she was just a very religious lady. She prayed three boys through World War II. And then each one of us should have been killed a dozen times. So, so that's the power of prayer. That's why I'm such a good Christian today. You know? Oh, that's another uh, ironic thing. All during the war, I had one brother in the Mediterranean as a captain. And I had two, and the other older brother was in the old Army Air Corps in England. All during the war, and I was in Atlantic, Pacific, Mediterranean, India, every war zone I was in. I never met anybody from home. Nobody from high school, nobody from church, nobody from college, except two people, my two brothers. I was walking down the street in London, and here comes my brother from the Army Air Corps walking down the street. The second one, as I was in a Liberty ship, I was in the Philippine Islands, we pulled into Leyte. The ship pulls in next to me, it was my brother's ship when he was captain. So we signaled over, and he sent a lifeboat over, and I went over and we visited him. I mean, of all the people you know, my two brothers. And of course, after the war, Donald continued to serve in the Merchant Marines. But then his son was born, and he thought it would be best to come home. For a while, he took it easy, and then he worked for different insurance companies as a boiler and machinery inspector. And of course, he went back to his ballroom dancing. As far as my dancing... Uh, I was married to a professional dancer. She taught me ballroom dancing. Taught me uh, it was very important. The man knows how to lead, so the girl knows what to do. So I'm a, a very strong leader. And uh, I, I used to go ballroom dancing four or five times a week. Now I go twice a week. You know? And uh, in the villages... Most of the men don't know how to dance. They want to play golf. And uh, I love to dance, you know. So I have 26 dance partners that I can dance. <laughs> so, uh, I was playing golf, of course, when I came to the world. And I played with the same three guys. And then I had a hip replacement. I had a hip replacement. I had to give up golf because I couldn't bend over to tee up the ball anymore. Now I have two Ripley persons. So I explained to them, look guys, I'm through, I'm quitting, can't go anymore. They said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going back to ballroom dancing. Well, they cracked up. Oh, ballroom dancing. I said, now listen up, dummies, and listen carefully. I have a decision to make. I can either play golf with three fat old men that cheat on their golf scores, or I can be on a dance floor with a beautiful woman in my arms. And no brainer, dummies, no brainer. Oh, but ballroom, that's for wimps. I said, oh, and I'll get out there. And I said, I'll dance to three minutes and not even be breathing heavy. Any one of you fat guys got in there, they'd be calling 911 for an ambulance in 10 seconds. So now who's the wimp here? So that shut them up on that. Do you go out on dates? Yeah, if I I dance with somebody, we'll go to dinner or something like that. So you've got to make your way around. Yeah, right. 
Well, on Valentine's Day, I handed out 22 boxes of Valentine candy to my dance brothers. <laughs> Got to make sure they felt the love. Yeah. <laughs> and did they feel it? There, there's regularly? no romantic thing. Well, I, I always tell them, no, just consider me an ear to listen and a shoulder to lean on. And a companion and a dance Men friends say, geez, what are you two those women? You know? I said, nothing. I said, uh, if I, I said, if I catch one, I wouldn't know what to do. I don't have an instruction book. In the end, I was able to ask him how his time in the service affected his life and how things have changed. I thought it was a great education. Uh, I learned geography, obviously. And, uh, and I learned how to cope with breakdowns when you're in the middle of the ocean in a storm and your engine breaks down you don't call AAA it's either fix it or sink you know so what do you think of my my generation well good and bad so there's a lot of good ones out there there's a lot of lost sheep out there too. and I think it breaks my heart is the way they've been moving away from religion you know I mean, I'm, uh, I pray every day. And I could write a book on answered prayers. You know, Obviously, some of those answered prayers were from his mom, who, according to Donald, her prayers got them through the war. Thank you for all your service, Donald. You're greatly appreciated. And of course, thanks for taking time to share your story. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. Reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And Faith, you're making all of us cry here. Thanks for doing that. And Donald, we got to come see you. Thanks for all you gave to the country and for what you just gave to all of our listeners. A laugh, a tear. What a beautiful story. Don's story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and Jesse I'm not sure what that music is but it sounds like something off the Shaft or Superfly soundtrack The Visioneers oh The Visioneers I love it I love it it sounds like something that our our friend Trenton Quentin not Trenton Quentin Tarantino it's very California it is very California love it recently we came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a guy named Kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of Nevada a micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom of this, bottom of this story, and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job than Jesse. 
I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno, to visit with a man named Kevin Baugh. Now, Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of Molossia. What is Molossia, you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves. Molossia is a micronation. Basically, it's a, a tiny self-declared country. Uh, we sort of see it as a, um, expression, a self-expression, uh, creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But also, we want to have everything in Molossia that a regular country would have. That's why we have our own post office, phone system, and so forth like that. Um, Molossia was originally founded uh, in 1977. Uh, my friend James and I, uh, we saw a movie called The Mouse That Roared uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that, mo of that movie. So we decided we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of Volstein. And he, at that time, and um, he was king, I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school, but I stayed with it over the years. And then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be a uh, property of our sovereign nation, Malasia. Now, the Republic of Malasia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation state completely surrounded by the United States. And as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please. Say Can someone move to Malasia or apply for citizenship? Well, actually, no. We do not um, allow other people to move in and become, become citizens of Malasia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, we have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East... It, we have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I, I'll get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to you know, come into the U.S. and see this is a way to get here. But Malasia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family members. Does the United States government care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation? The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malasia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are... Uh, I guess, again, they see it sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, we do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh, this guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now. Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. Uh, it's really back in the midst of times because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. At the time, I was the prime minister. It was the Grand Republic of Wolstein at that time. And I was the prime minister, and I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would roast us up out of our sleep, and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go you know, stand a, po a post because it was you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister... I guess I was rusted out of my sleep one too many times, so I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. 
And then a few years ago, I was rooting through my records and I pulled this thing out and I said, well, that's kind of cute, that's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discovered that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called Ernst Tailman Island, and it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, uh -huh. I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the, to the yeah. East Germany. Um, I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue, a statue there on there and so forth, and it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty. So it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany, at least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island, it's uninhabited, except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S. You know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba, we can't really you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever for as long as at least the embargo goes on, because we would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty place. Making peace with marine iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the first lady. I met the first lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that popular anymore, but it was a big thing back a few years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me, kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way. And she, I didn't really present myself as kind of like a, it's like a, it's like a separate thing. It was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president, just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country. And she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, uh, it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since. What are some of like your house rules or laws, I guess you would call them? Uh, like all countries, Malaysia uh, has its own customs, uh, standards, and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, there was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago. And one of the opening splash things always was a, always a little sign next to a meadow under a tree. And one time it said, no walruses. And my, my uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny. So we put that on there. Uh, no catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malazi. We're in the desert. But they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago. And FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple things uh, that you can't bring. No plastic bags, bad for the environment. No incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Kokens measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone, uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia. Now, do you, do you always dress like that? I dress like a dictator. Well, I mean, because it's kind of a style and thing to do. But anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or an emperor or something along that line. And I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. 
it wasn't my thing. So wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this is a dictatorship. We want to see it as a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway. It's a family country. And so, uh, and we have, you know, have a good time. It's a, it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship. It's a family country, he says. Kevin Baugh, one of a kind, the micro nation of Malasia. Look him up, pay him a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is Our American Stories. Uh, thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy off oh, the yeah, air? Pretty much, just he, bad. Exactly what you heard. Bad out there, crazy. Yeah. Nice guy though. Hey, that's what we do here in our American stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story. If you want to be, this is our American stories, Kevin. The dictator, the head honcho of Malasia, somewhere in northern Nevada. (laughs) This is Lee Habib, and this is our American stories. Pipe down, sling blade. And you're listening to commencement music. And that means we're doing our commencement speech of the day all month long. We're doing our favorite commencement speeches from a while back right up to the present. Mostly really great ones. But that Duke University commencement speech by that professor was so bad it was great. It was so awful it was funny. (laughs) And if you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org. And look up that Duke commencement speech. As bad a speech as you could ever hear. Funny. Because he started attacking the audience for not laughing at his stupid (laughs) jokes. It's never a good place to be. And today we want to focus on a a pair of speeches. uh, That Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, and the man behind the empire that Bloomberg is, a billionaire, And a heck of a mayor, wherever you stand politically, he got that city to run and work. And the first commencement speech was at Harvard in 2014. And it's quite a speech. And, well, Bloomberg earned his MBA here. And I think people were expecting him to give this pep talk about what a wonderful place Harvard is, given that he was giving the speech at Harvard. Let's take a listen. In the 2012 presidential race, according to Federal Election Commission data, 96% of all campaign contributions from Ivy League faculty and employees went to Barack Obama. 96%. There was was more disagreement among the old Soviet Politburo than there was among Ivy League donors. And that statistic should give us some pause. And I say it as someone who endorsed President Obama for re-election. Because let me tell you something. Neither party has a monopoly on truth or God on its side. When, when 96% of Ivy League donors prefer one candidate to another, you really have to wonder whether students are being exposed to the diversity of views that a great university should offer. 
Diversity of gender, ethnicity, and orientation is important. But a university cannot be great if its faculty is politically homogeneous. In fact, the whole purpose of... In fact, the whole purpose of granting tenure to professors is to ensure that they feel free to conduct research on ideas that run afoul of university politics and societal norms. When tenure was created, it was mostly protected liberals whose ideas ran against conservative norms. Today, if tenure is going to continue, it must also protect conservatives whose ideas run up against liberal norms. Otherwise, University research and the professors who conduct it will lose credibility. Great universities must not become predictably partisan, and a liberal arts education must not be an education in the art of liberalism. The role of universities is not to promote an ideology. It is to provide scholars and students with a neutral forum for researching and debating our issues without tipping the scales in one direction or repressing unpopular views. Requiring scholars and commencement speakers, for that matter, to conform to certain political standards undermines the whole purpose of a university. Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting that Harvard's clapping, and I think that's a lot of the students. You know, your faculty may be leaning one way or another, but the students get it. I think a lot more students than we know get it. And it was interesting when, they, when he pointed out that 96% voted for one candidate. And by the way, whichever side, that's just a terrible number. There were people clapping. There were people actually clapping. It was embarrassing for, for them. I don't think they know. He, they don't think they knew he was, he was ridiculing them. Let's rejoin Bloomberg in this really remarkable commencement address at Harvard. Again, he got his MBA there. Now, I'm sure all of today's graduates have read John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. But just let me read a short passage from it. Quote, The particular evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. He continued, If the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as great a benefit, the clear perception and livelier impression of youth, of truth, produced by its collision with error. Now, Mill would have been horrified to learn of university students siling the opinions of others. He would have been even more horrified that faculty members were often part of the commencement censorship campaigns. For tenured professors to silence speakers whose views they disagree with is really the height of hypocrisy, especially when those protests happen in the Northeast, the bastion of self-professed liberal tolerance. And Bloomberg continues his tear on the illiberal tendencies at many American universities, including Harvard. This spring, this spring, it has been disturbing to see a number of college commencement speakers withdraw or have their invitations rescinded after protests from students and, to me, shockingly, from senior faculty and administrators who should know better. It happened at Brandeis, Haverford, Rutgers, and Smith. And last year it happened at Smarthmore and Johns Hopkins, I'm ha- sorry to say. In each of these cases, 
Liberals silenced a voice, and they denied an honorary degree to individuals that they deemed politically objectionable. This is an outrage, and we must not let it continue. If a university thinks twice before inviting a commencement speaker because of his or her politics, censorship and conformity, the mortal enemies of freedom, win out. And sadly, it's not just commencement season when speakers are censored. Last fall, when I was still in City Hall, our police commissioner was invited to deliver a lecture at another Ivy League institution. But he was unable to do so because students shouted him down. Isn't the purpose of a university to stir stir discussion, not silence it? What were the students afraid of hearing? And why did administrators not step in to prevent the mob from silencing speech? And did anyone consider that it is morally and pedagogically wrong to deprive other students the chance to hear the speech? So well said. And here is how Bloomberg closed out this remarkable and I think courageous speech to his alma mater, Harvard University. Now, I know this has not been a traditional commencement speech. And in fact, it may keep me from passing a dissertation defense in the humanities department. (laughs) But there is no easy time to say hard things. Graduates throughout your lives, do not be afraid of saying what you believe is right no matter how unpopular it may be, especially when it comes to defending the rights of others. Stand up for the rights of others, and in some ways, it's even more important than standing up for your own rights. Because when people seek to repress freedom for some, and you may remain silent, you are complicit in that repression, and you may well become its victim. Do not be complicit. Do not follow the crowd. Speak up and fight back. You will take your lumps, I can assure you of that. You will lose some friends and make some enemies, I can assure you of that too. But the arc of history will be on your side, and our nation will be stronger for it. Great words of wisdom. And two years later, well, he was at the University of Michigan. And talking about a few things that weren't really even things just two years before when he made that speech at Harvard. And it shows just how rapidly campuses have ramped up their liberal tendencies. Here's Bloomberg. The fact that some university boards and administrations now bow to pressure groups and shield students from these ideas through safe spaces, code words, and trigger warnings is, in my view, a terrible mistake. The whole purpose of college is to learn how to deal with difficult situations, not to run away from them. A microaggression is exactly that, micro. But in a macro sense, one of the most dangerous places on a college campus is the so-called safe space, because it creates a false impression that we can isolate ourselves from those who hold different views. We can't, and we shouldn't try. Boy, they didn't like it. Some of the students didn't like what Michael Bloomberg was saying. But this idea (laughs) idea of safe zones and microaggressions is crazy. 
And let's again rejoin Bloomberg for his concluding message to the University of Michigan graduates this year. Democracy is fragile and demagogues are always lurking. When Ben Franklin was leaving the Constitutional Convention, a woman approached him and asked, Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And Franklin replied, A republic, if you can keep it. Well, graduates, it is now your responsibility to keep it. And great words of wisdom, a great quote, and two terrific speeches. Google it. Put on Bloomberg and Harvard, Bloomberg and the University of Michigan. Share it with all of your friends. What's happening at campuses is just a bit crazy. Safe zones, microaggressions, not good for the kids, not good for the adults, not good for the country. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all of this. This is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on the show. And one of our favorite subjects is family. And today you're in for a treat. John and Brody Coyle join us. Both of these guys played for the University of Alabama, the Crimson Tide. And I'm going well, to put aside our personal differences because we're broadcasting from Ole Miss uh, right here in Oxford, Mississippi, and they're an arch rival. John was the father. He played for Bear Bryant back in the 70s, won a national championship, could have gone into the NFL, but he didn't. He started the Big Oak Ranch, and he takes in kids there that their parents don't want or just can't raise. And over the years, well, he's taking care of 2,000 kids. Right now, they're taking care of 140 at the Big Oak Ranch. John Coral's son, well, he was raised at this ranch, and he ended up going to Alabama and being the star quarterback and ended up playing in the NFL. And you won't believe this, young Brody Coral is now back at that ranch living even after his NFL career and his really great career as a real estate developer. Thank you guys both for joining us. John, I want to start with you. I want to talk about where you were born. Tell us a little bit about your parents and your early life. Uh, i tell you what, I was very, very blessed. I had a great mom and dad. And uh, my dad uh, grew up really tough. As a matter of fact, uh, Brody and I talked to my daughter and my wife about if there had been a Big Oak Ranch for uh, children needing a chance, my dad would have qualified because he just had a dysfunctional family, to say the least. And he looked at me when I was in the little bassinet, and he made a promise to me. He said, I will never miss a game you play. And his dad never saw him play, and he played little uh, minor league semi-pro baseball and uh, his dad never saw him play his whole career. And that being said, uh, he kept his promise, with the exception of one time when there was a death in the family and he had to go take care of business. Other than that, he was always there, whether we were in Los Angeles or Dallas or all over the southeast, uh, playing for Coach Bryant. Uh, he was always there. And um, 
they uh, they love me. I mean, I, I wish I could make it complicated, but uh, I was their life, and they made sure that when everybody else was being stupid, that he wasn't going to let me. And um, he was a little of a guy, 5'11 guy from New York, but uh, I, I was afraid of him. I mean, even when I was a lot bigger than him, uh, he looked at me once. He said, it, it, you know, you're bigger, stronger, faster. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, it don't take big, strong, and fast to pull a trigger. And uh, that kind of cleared the air of confusion. And so uh, I had great parents. I was blessed. And, and your parents instilled certain values, uh, John, in you, I think, deep. Uh, talk about some of those. Talk about uh, faith in your family and what role that played, what it instilled in you and your life and your choices, John. Uh, my parents carried me to church every weekend. I mean, we, we didn't miss a Sunday. And uh, I got to just witness him working, for example, working with youth groups. And I would see my dad take $10 and go buy a kid a glove because that kid's dad wouldn't or couldn't. And I just watched that my whole life. And that's one of the things we talk about as a family is that there's many things I do that now Brody does that we both learn from my dad. And, uh, like, you know, just you know, courtesy and there's no excuse for rudeness and there's no substitute for just being courteous to people. Be nice. And uh, that's one of the things I admire about my dad and Brody, too, is uh, I've, I've never seen Brody be rude to anyone that wanted an autograph or a picture. He's always been very kind about that, and we both learned it from my dad. And I would assume that your dad taught you a little bit about work, too, John. Talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said, uh, when, he, when I was little, he said, don't do it if you're going to do it half-baked. Uh, but he didn't say baked. And uh, yep. we have uh, applied that now to our lives, and uh, that's one thing that's really needed is when people come to the ranch, they see um, quality without extravagance. And uh, we think if you're going to do it, just do it right, build it to last, and because uh, it's going to wear your name and our family's name. And uh, that's one of the things I learned from him. And uh, now our, our grandchildren learn that from their dads. And you had another male role model, and I want to talk briefly about him now, John, for about a minute. And then, Brody, we're going to talk a bit about uh, this role model and this mentor, too. And his name was Bear Bryant. And, John, just for about a, a minute or two, talk about some of the things that you and the boys who played for Bear learned from him off the grid, off the X's and O's, off the football field. Uh, what did you learn from him, and what did he teach you as men? Um, show your class, have a plan, work hard, and uh, when your ribs are cracked and your finger is dislocated, uh, you put it back in place and you keep playing. Uh, there's no room for quitting. And his theory was if he could make you quit on Tuesday, you would quit on Saturday. And to be honest, Saturday was the easiest day of the week because uh, getting prepared for Saturday. But I think the very first meeting, he set the tone. He said, quote, don't show me how good you are. Don't prove to me what you've got. He said, just join us and let's win the national championship. And that was it. And we lost one regular season game in three years. We won the national championship my senior year. And uh, we have just been so very blessed to, to take many of the things he taught us and apply them now with our children and um, uh, mental, mental toughness. I mean, that's missing with a lot of kids today. And, and, and I know Brody's on the phone with us, but uh, he's mentally the toughest man I know. And uh, I have just watched him in his whole career. And I learned a lot of that from my dad and from Coach Bryant. Well, hold that thought, John. And when we come back, more on this remarkable father-son story about male mentorship and about so much more. This is Lee Habib, John and Brody Croyle 
for the hour, a remarkable father-son story here on Our American Stories. is Lee Habib and we continue with John and Brody Quarrel and we were talking about male mentorship, we were talking about moms and now the subject of fatherlessness. And John, you had uh, just been talking about Bear Bryant. I remember you telling me a story once about Bear Bryant saying that in in the end life comes down to a few key plays. Talk about that because I think it's so important, not just metaphorically for football, but I think in all of life. You know, Lee, um, before every ball game, 36 times I heard him say, in this game, there's going to be four or five plays that will determine the outcome of the ball game. You may be the hero, you may be the coach, but rest assured the plays are coming. And there's people listening to the three of us right now. And if I or you or Brody were to say, name five plays that changed your life, every adult can go to those five plays right now with no hesitation. Some are positive, some are negative. But we've all got those plays. And, and for me, uh, just it's just been a series of plays where, and and I, I hope that, you know, uh, I come across the right way with this, but God's got a plan for all of us. And if we'll just listen and listen carefully and then follow that plan, everything's going to be just fine. And um, that's one of the things we learned. And, and when I was 19, one of the plays in my life was just meeting a little boy whose mother was a prostitute, and he was the banker and the timekeeper for his mom, and I told that little boy he could become a Christian. He came back the following year and told me word for word what I taught him the summer before, and I realized at 19 I had been given a gift, and I know it is rare to know why you got put on earth at 19, but it just worked out perfectly, and then Coach Bryant was instrumental in getting us to build a home for children, and 2,000 children have benefited from what he and my dad have taught in me. Well, it's interesting, you know, when in your, you're in your senior year, here's Coach Bryant, who's legend for sending boys to the NFL, and you have this crisis. You're not sure you want to go to the NFL, and if you do, you're only going for the money because you want to help kids. You want to work at a ranch or something. You have something in your head that says, God's gifted me with this. And talk about that moment with Bear, because you're seeking his guidance, John. You're seeking his mentorship, 
And what happens on that, that, that? I think that's one of the big plays in your life, too. It must be. What does Coach tell you, and what happens next? Uh, very simply put, um, leadership is simple. Uh, you got to know where you're going, and you're able to persuade people to go with you. And he had that in loads. I mean, just dripping out his nose. And I went to see him and said, Coach Brian, I'd like to get some money to throw a ball and start a home for children. And he looked at me and did not hesitate. He said, don't play pro ball unless you're willing to marry it. He said, go build that ranch you've been talking about. I walked out of his office and never looked back. And I say this with all humility, Lee. I, I have never been depressed. I've been mad, angry, tired, exhausted, filled with anger. I mean, I've been all those, but I've never been depressed because uh, I'm running on the road that he and others have helped build. Yeah, and it was interesting. You, you, know, you, you must have left that office thinking, okay, I'm going to start a ranch. How do I do that? How do I do that? And yet, in came John. In came the love. I mean, in came money for you to support that vision. Some from some local businessmen. Talk about one guy who really stepped up. A guy you played some ball with in Alabama, who went on to be well in the Hall of Fame. All right, uh, John Hanna. He and I came into Alabama as freshmen, and uh, he is by many standards the best offensive lineman to ever play in the NFL. As a matter of fact, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And John had a tremendous career, and um, he and I met just before I was getting ready to get started with the ranch, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm raising support to build this home for children. He said, tell you what, uh, what do you need? I said, 30. He said, well, that's my bonus for that year in 1974, and he gave us his bonus, and we took that money and started Big Oak Ranch, and uh, he's been a friend for a long time, and he jumped in when a lot of people didn't want to, um, so we have just been so very, very blessed. And that first year, we took his money and another friend, purchased the land, and I'm literally sitting in the yard, and I just said, Lord, I'm willing. And uh, that's all God wanted to hear, and the rest is history. Yep, and the rest is history. And, and Brody, you know, you grew up uh, around this guy, this, this John Crawl. Uh, talk about your dad, and, and don't blush, John, and maybe you need to even turn it off for a minute. But, Brody, tell, <laughs> tell, tell the country about your relationship with your dad, you growing up, what did you see? How was your life different than some of the other boys you knew? Tell me about your early life, Brody, and, and what, what it was like growing up on a ranch like the Big Oak Ranch, which, by the way, folks, is in Gadsden, Alabama, a beautiful place to live. Well, uh, the best way that I know how to explain it is actually a story that goes with my son and the birth of my first son. And I'm sitting there, and he's now five years old. And you know how it is when you have a baby, and everybody comes in, and they're all excited, and they're gushing about how pretty he is and how, which, you know, it's got to be a lot sometimes because there's some newborns that just, man, they just got a, just a goofy look about them. <laughs> but, uh, but mine, of course, was not. Right, but, uh, I'm just kidding. But, uh, he, uh, he came in, and he was the last one to come in. And uh, he had kind of let everybody else like he does and like he was raised by his dad and, uh, we all try and follow suit. You know, you let everybody else go first, and you, you're the last one. And uh, so he was the last one to kind of come in and uh, do all that and get to hold his grandson. And uh, he had something in his pocket, and uh, he handed me something. And, I, you know, like your dad's giving you something for the first time. You know, as a first-time dad, you're kind of expecting this, that, or other, and it's a compass. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, well, all right, Dad, well, thanks for the compass. He goes, you know what it is? I was like, not really. He said, it's called a lensatic compass. And 
basically what it is back in World War One, uh, back before all this technology and everything. The commander would call in, and he would call, or the general would call in, and he would tell his captain, all right, I want you to go 110 by 100 degrees north, northeast. I want you to find your mark, and you could take that compass, and you could lock it in on that mark, and no matter which way you spun, no matter how lost you got, you could always find your true north. And uh, he said, and you get to that spot, and you wait for the next instruction. And he said, he said, bud, you're entering into being a dad. He said, uh, never lose sight of your true north. He said, always understand what your true north is. He said, there's going to be a lot of seasons. There's going to be a long journey. He said, but always stick to your true north and what that true north lies in. He said, and if you do that, he said, I'm going to go to your boy in 18 years. He said, I'm going to go to Sawyer, and I'm going to say, Sawyer, who's the godliest man that you know? And he said, buddy, if you stay to that true north, he said, he's going to look me dead in the eyes, and he's going to say, my daddy's the godliest man that I know. And I tell you that story to tell you that uh, my dad is the godliest man that I know, and it is because he always stuck to his true north. It is because he never wavered. He was always the same man every single day. And I always tell people the best way to learn is to watch. And I got to literally watch the best, and he and my mom live it every single day. That's a beautiful story, Brody. And you grew up on the ranch, didn't you? Talk about that. You're around all these kids. And now you've got to be, in a sense, the true north to them, don't you? Uh, you know what? Growing up, uh, I was just one of the boys. And that's I literally went straight from the hospital to the ranch. Yep. It was the only life that I ever knew. And... Those were my brothers, and those were my sisters at the girls' ranch, and they were no different than me. The only difference is that I had my real mom and dad, and my, my parents raised me to look at it that way, and I now live at the ranch with my two boys, and they have 70 brothers that live here with them and 70 sisters at the girls' ranch, and they're looking at it the exact same way. And you know what? That is a, uh, that's a great perspective that, um, you know, our my parents instilled in me and my sister and our family is that you know what we're very blessed that uh because we get to see the other side of it and we get to see the parents that didn't want the job we get to see the parents that struggle with different things and can't handle uh taking care of their own children and uh the awesome awesome part is that god's called us that we get to play a small role and get to fill that void and bridge that gap so uh all these kids and, you know, the 140 we take care of on a daily basis and the 2,000 that have been here now know what family looks like because God placed a calling on a man's life 43 years ago. Well, what a blessing that you followed in your dad's footsteps. You know, you went into the NFL, Brody, and a lot of guys go into the NFL and the North Star becomes, well, you know what the North Star becomes for guys in the NFL. And yeah. it's, it's tragic and it's sad. If you, don't, if you get that much money that young and that much fame, well, life gets difficult. On the other side, we're going to take a break here. We're going to continue our conversation with Brody and then bring back John because I want to have the story told of how this place, the Big Oak Ranch, got formed and, more importantly, how it evolved from a place for boys to a ranch for girls. This is Lee Habib, an extraordinary father-son story, one of my favorites, and we spend a lot of time on the subject, folks. John Croyle, Brody Croyle, for the hour. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with John and Brody Coyle. And Brody, we were just talking about the NFL. I just, you know, talked a bit about it. And, you know, you, you were there. You were on the cover of Sports Illustrated, my goodness, as a young man. And, and then you find yourself in the NFL. Talk about how important it was to have a dad like you had and that North Star that you had in your head. And, and I believe also this, this relationship you had with God. How did that help protect you from many of the, let's just say, the trappings that can come with instant fame and a whole lot of cash, Brody? Uh, well, you know, growing up the way that I grew up and growing up grounded the way that I grew up obviously helped. But you know what? Uh, no one is above uh, getting sucked in by that. No one is above uh, the lifestyle that comes with that. And I'm no different, you know. And honestly, I mean, I didn't do a lot of the things and end up in the media and in the news for doing. But you know what? When I was 11 years old, I walked in to uh, actually my parents' room, and I'd never played one down of organized football. And I walked in, I looked at them, I said, I'm going to play in the NFL. And versus telling me, hey, buddy, why don't we worry about making the JV squad or something like that? <laughs> yeah. They uh, they said, shoot for the moon, man. Worst case scenario, we'll end up in the stars. And uh, I'm ashamed to say, to a fault, football became my god at that point in time. Now, don't get me wrong. I could, I could say all the right things and I could do all the right things. And maybe in my mind, I thought that I still had my priorities straight. But football became my god. It's all I chased. Uh, and, you know, honestly, I've, I've heard some the other day. If God's not first on your list, he's not on your list. So uh, I fell victim to that. And I chased it, and I loved everything that went along with it. But we always talk about, you know, at the ranch, if you know who you are, you know what you are, and you know why you're here, then God will honor that, and you will you know why you're put on earth and what your purpose is. And uh, I had a foundation that – I always knew what to come back to, and uh, I was blessed. I have a godly wife, and I have a godly family that uh, literally lived it every day and uh, let me watch. And uh, that foundation and that um, uh, just loving spirit and that knowing where you come from. I mean, I've, I've had 11 surgeries. I've had three broken vertebras. I've had dislocated ribs. I've had broken ribs. I've had dislocated jaws. I was always too small to play football. I was just too stupid to understand it. Uh, so I always knew what the other side looked like that a lot of people don't get to see on the glamour part of it. Yep. But at the same point in time, every time I'd have a setback, every time I'd have a bump in this journey, that was God obviously getting my attention saying, Hey, shift it back to me, bud. come on back to me. But there was also where I grew up. I'd sit there and, you know, I'd feel sorry for myself for a little bit. And uh, literally a couple of days into it, I could sit there and go, I got six months of rehab. And I got boys and girls that I grew up with. They're literally just trying to put the pieces of their life back together. And it always put it back into perspective for me. Yeah, and we all need it. We I don't know how anybody – actually, frankly, I don't know how people live without it or get through without it. John, let's go back now. You, you, you've approached Bear Bryant. You've gotten this help to start a ranch. But you don't know what, what the heck you're doing. I mean, you have maybe some vision in your head. Some might say still doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> some might. Some might. So you, you stumble out there. How do you find your first kids? What do you do? Tell the story of that first year, that first two, of just getting it going. And, and talk about the self-doubt for all the folks out there who have doubts. And I, don't, I think it's the most human thing in the world to have doubts. 
The key is how you fight through those doubts. You have fears. How do you fight through those fears? Talk about all of that if you can, John. To be blunt, uh, we purchased the land, and uh, I was sitting in the front yard with my dog, and that was all we had was a 120-acre ranch, a 1,200-square-foot farmhouse, and within two weeks, we had five boys. We got one out of a boxcar at a uh, tire company. We got one out of a barn. We got one out of a home in New Orleans. We got one out of a um, home up in Boston, Massachusetts that he set fire to. I mean, we had five boys in two weeks. And one thing I've learned and, and, and our family believes, attempt something so great for God that it's destined for failure unless he is in it. And based upon that, I was just stupid enough to say, come on, God, let's go. I, I'm willing. And uh, that first boy is now 61 years old, and he's a grandfather. And um, one, one of the things that really worked, and, and I'm going to kind of toss it back a minute, is uh, I looked at my wife the other day, and uh, I said, you know what I told somebody today? And she said, what? I said, somebody asked me what you were like. And she said, what would you tell them? I said, my wife thinks I can do anything. And uh, that kind of support is the reason Brody is where he is, you are, I am, any man that's made it, he's got that, that core belief that his mate's right there with him fighting the fight. And uh, my wife has known this, and then Brody's wife jumped in, and the best line I've ever heard my daughter-in-law say is when he told her he wanted to go back to the ranch, and she said, tell me when, and I'll have us packed. Wow. Now, how many, how many 22-, 23-year-old kids that have been married for you know just a short period of time. Look at their husband and say, "You tell me when I'm in." Wow, uh, that's strong. And as a matter of fact, if anything ever happens to Kelly and Brody, I don't care where he goes. Kelly's coming home with me, <laughs> so uh, it's all good. Now talk about he your, means that too. Talk about your bride because here you are. You're on the cusp of. I mean, you could have gone into the NFL. You could have done a lot of things with your life, and you're sitting there with this dream in your head. Talk about you know first sharing that with her. And did she look at you like you were crazy? Um, did she say, I'm in? Did she have the same faith you had about this vision? Real quickly, um, uh, I asked her to marry me on the boys' ranch. And I said, I love you. Will you marry me? And we're going to have 80 boys. She said, let's go through them one at a time. And uh, we went through them again. And uh, she said something about three years ago that just nailed me. Uh, I'd always said, I got chosen to do this. She chose to come do it, and she had a choice. And uh, anyway, she looked at me about three years ago. She said, did it ever cross your mind maybe I was chosen too? <laughs> I picked up my legs. I picked up my heart. I busted. Busted. Major busted. <laughs> Major that, busted. What, and uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, she, she's had every reason to just tell me goodbye. But uh, she's been here 42 years, and um, we're where we are now because of Brody's mama. But, Brody, let's talk about your mom, uh, because John just talked about his bride. But talk about your mom and the role she's played in your development and how it's helped you in some ways to even choose your wife. Because in the end, if we see what a mom looks like, then this <laughs> informs us when we go to choose our wives. It's just funny you say that. That's why Dad and I both are laughing. Because, uh, <laughs> one, my mother my mother is just, uh, I mean, when I was growing up, just to keep the doors open, uh, I mean, Dad would speak, you know, 300 times a year. So, I mean, he was on the road a lot. And uh, 
So my mother is a strong, strong woman that uh, is just a godly woman. That uh, she is a calculus teacher, and there she one, so she's typically smarter than you and everything. And then secondly, there is no gray. You're either right or you're wrong. So uh, there was never any uh, talking her into anything. You're either right or you're wrong. And uh, my mother is just a great, great woman. But we we both giggled because uh, there's so many things. I mean, like all of us, that we grow up and we go, man, I'm definitely not going to marry somebody like that. Like the things that get on your nerves about your mom or your dad, and you're sitting there and going, man, there's no way. I can't wait. And then I married someone who is exactly like her. Like carries herself the same way, has the same fiery spirit, the same will put you in your place in a heartbeat. And uh, I honestly, I couldn't be more blessed. And my two little boys couldn't be more blessed because of the precedent that my mother set and honestly the precedent that uh, my wife's family set. And uh, now my boys get to grow up and have the same uh, characteristics in a godly woman. And like you said, now they understand and they get to look for because they get to watch every day. And then one day, uh, I pray that they marry somebody just like their mama and just like their grandmama because uh, those are two great women. We're talking to John and Brody Croyle. And when we come back, a final segment with this remarkable father-son team, this remarkable father-son story here on Our American Stories. is Lee Habib and we continue with John and Brody Coral and we were talking about male mentorship, we were talking about moms and now the subject of fatherlessness. When we do father-son segments, uh, one of the things we've learned about fatherlessness is not just the impact it has on boys, their propensity to join gangs, their propensity for jail, for drug abuse, for violence, uh, and we know why that happens. We're guys. But what happens to women without fathers is a tale that's not told often enough. And so, John, ultimately, you had this uh, big oak ranch for boys. Tell the story that got you to think about something special for those girls. Uh, one of the plays of my life, I was walking down the hallway of a court, and I glanced down. I was walking with a social worker, and uh, there was a little 12-year-old girl sitting there. She had honey blonde hair that was really dirty. And uh, she looked up, and she had beautiful, beautiful, sad green eyes. And she had been raped by her father while her mother held her down. And uh, we do what we do for a living. And, and our family, we can spot an abused child about a mile away. And uh, that's all we've known. And uh, I just glanced down at her, and um, I, I picked her up. And I remember uh, they'd had to do a hysterectomy to put her back together. And uh, she was just destroyed. And uh, I told the judge, if you send her back home, the father will do it again and kill her in six months. I was wrong. Uh, he did it in three months and killed her. And I promised God that when the time was right, we'd build a home for girls. So there's that anchor in the ground, that stake that will not move. And uh, that's why now we have a 325-acre ranch in Springville. And uh, there's uh, approximately 70 girls living there that are getting a chance at life. And we're trying to explain it. I'm, I'm going to quote Brody on this one when he says, 
we show girls what a real family and a real mom and dad look like and what a real father figure looks like. And uh, that is just so essential. And there's women listening to us right now that would give anything they own to have their dad just look at them as they were going up and said, you know what, you're my princess and you're the most beautiful little girl I've ever seen. And I love you. They've never heard that. And they are literally scarred for life. And when they marry, it takes a special man to lift them out of that dungeon of um, self-doubt and self-confidence. And um, that's just what we've seen. And now when I see Brody walk in and a little girl runs up and hugs his neck, and he just uh, looks at her and says, as long as we breathe, no one's ever going to ever hurt you like that again. That's a very good day. That's a great day. And, you know, I, I have a bride who, who whose mom worked real hard, but she was a single mom, and my bride was vulnerable, and, and she fell into sexual abuse with a, a man in the family who just took advantage of the opportunity. And it, it cost my wife dearly and, uh, in the end, scarred her in ways that, you know, to this day, it, it still lingers. And she talks routinely with young, young women about this and older women about the impact of not having a father present. Um, and the sexual abuse part, uh, the guys, as you well know, because this is what your life is, the numbers are off the charts. Why do you think it is? What are the women looking for because of that absent father? What do you think is actually going on psychologically with these kids? Brody, you want to take that? The reason that we say, if you hadn't ever seen it, how are you ever going to repeat it? And uh, the thing that is so, it, Dad always told me, he said, the hardest thing you're going to be able to have to do he says when a little girl comes up and she thinks she doesn't even know who God is. We had somebody the other day that was doing a devotion. One of our house dads was doing a devotion with his kids. And uh, with his and one, he's like, man, I felt like I just I was so prepared and I was so ready and I was ready for this devotion. And, man, he's like, I was teaching calculus. And he said we had a new boy. And literally I'm halfway through the devotion. And the boy looks at me and he goes, who's Jesus? He's like, it was the biggest slap in the face to me because he's like, I had no clue because I just assumed. And we have girls that go, so this Jesus you're talking about, um, he's everywhere, right? Sure is, baby. He's all, he's got a great plan for everybody's life. Sure does, baby. Well, where was he when my dad was hurting me? And that's a hard, hard question that honestly, we on this earth probably don't have the answer to. Right. But the best way that I know how to tell you of what God can do and how God can, I mean, he obviously uses us and uses uh, his children as lights for him. And the best way for our kids to understand the love of a father and the love of their creator and the love of their father is to see it through their parents. And unfortunately, I mean, we had a little girl that was from the time she was five until she was 15. She was raped every single day by her dad. And that was the life that she knew. And I got to sit there and I got to look at that little girl and I got to make her the same four promises that my dad has made for the past 40 years. And I got to look at her and I got to say, baby, I love you. I don't want anything in return. Just give us an opportunity to earn your love back. I said, I'll never lie to you. Anybody sitting in this room and in that room would be me, my sister, my dad, the director, the social worker, the house parent, anybody that's going to have an integral part in her life is going to be in that room. It's like, if anyone in this room lies to you, they're fired on the spot. Do you understand me? She's like, mm-hmm. So we'll stick with you till you're grown. We, this coming fall, we'll have 25 kids in college. And so whatever it is you want to do in life, we want to help you get there. 
I said, in four, there's boundaries don't cross them. She went, all right. I said, baby, you get a fifth promise. And Dad said it earlier. And I, I just looked at her and I said, baby, as long as I breathe, nobody's ever going to hurt you like that again. Do you understand me? And she went, okay. And uh, some kids literally get it instant. Some kids that are abused, especially girls, will just, it's like, here, you take this. Get it off of me. Uh, and they will spill everything just to say, you know, it's off me now. And thank you. Some kids, it takes years. Some kids, we don't ever get to see the fruit. And uh, But you know what? That's okay. And for a year and a half, this girl fought. And, man, she pushed. And she just pushed her house parents to the brink every day, made sure that everything that I had told her was we were going to hold up our end of the bargain because everybody in her life had let her down because she had had that trust muscle ripped out of her so many times by the man that was supposed to protect her. And literally, after a year and a half, she went up to her house, Dad, the same man that the first week she was there and they had got through having dinner, she walked up to him and goes, is this when we go have sex now? Because that's the only life that she had ever known. She finally, she told, she finally told us, she said, I started to say yes, just where it wouldn't hurt so bad, where I didn't feel like I was getting raped. And after a year and a half, she went up to that same man, and she said, I don't know what it is you got, she said, but I want it. And they got to share with her how to become a Christian, how to change her life. And why do I tell you that story? It's because he showed her the love of a father. And she finally understood that, you know what, that man that used to do that to me and that man that used to hurt me and that man that pushed me to the brain, that man that made me question life and who I was and if I wanted to continue it, now she's gotten a year and a half with a godly man showing her what a father and what a father's love is supposed to look like. And because of that, she's now going to spend eternity in heaven because she now can understand the love of a father in heaven. Uh that is a good day, and that is uh, what we get to do on a daily basis. And people have said, you know, well, what if y'all would take Christian out of your name? What if they push you to take Christian out of your name? And you know what? That day might be coming, that they try to push us to do that. And they say, well, you know, we'll take away your 501c3. We'll do that unless y'all have Christian out of your name. You know what? We know that there is no change uh, without God Almighty. And uh, we know there is no change without that Christian thing. We know there is no change without showing the love of a uh, father, which then they can understand what they were put on life for. And uh, unfortunately, the abuse and the um, level of abuse and level of sexual abuse is getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, but that's what we get to do, and that's the kids that we get to help. And uh, I... People ask me all the time now, well, where do you see the ranch going? I say, man, I'd love for us to be out of business in 20 years. That would be amazing. That means no kids are getting hurt. That means no kids are seeing pain. That means no kids are getting raped by their fathers. But unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction. And uh, we will continue to uh, just follow that lead and follow God's lead and uh, continue to offer uh, what he intended for a family to be. Well, and as I told you guys during the break, uh, and Brody, and, and I thank your dad for this, um, because of these stories, I had not been a believer. I was, I had a child and I needed something more than what my dad taught me. He was not a believer. And, uh, ultimately witnessing the power of love, the inexplicable power that could have come from no other source. It led me to Christ myself. And, uh, and we don't get that personal on the show. I don't tend to share my own views, but on this one, I, I have no other option. 
And I just want to thank you, John, for what you did for me, what you've done for all these kids, and, and what you've done uh, for, for, for God, because in the end you're serving him doing what you do. And it must have just tickled you, John, to hear your son telling that story. It is, and uh, my wife and I, every morning we wake up, we pinch ourselves of how blessed we are. And um, I, I want to say this to anybody who listen to us. You can't be bad enough that God won't come get you. And you can't run far enough away that his hand is not on the other side trying to pull you back home. So we've all been there, and nobody's got it going on. But the neat thing about it is, Lee, you, me, Brody, our family, we will spend the rest of eternity together. And uh, I saw an atheist I met, and he just said, well, I don't believe in God. Said, That's okay. You're going to meet him one day. And so it's all good. And so we're just blessed that you let us be a part of what you're sharing with the nation. Well, thank you guys both, and I'm going to get out and visit you, I promise, and it'll happen in the next 30 days, and I look forward to seeing you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lee. That was great. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. John and Brody Coral. We've had them for the hour, and my goodness, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did.